If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. That's where we're going to be this morning. Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses 1 through 8. Um, I came across an article recently that identified the most searched phrase on Google in the year 2012. Most searched phrase. Uh, you know, I'm tempted to see if you guys could guess it, but I, we're a little too big for that, probably just barely. So I'm just going to tell you what it was. The phrase is, what is love? Most searched phrase. Because Google would know that, surely. Let's ask him, right? What is love? It was a most searched phrase in 2012 in the Guardian uh, newspaper out of the UK near the end of the year. did uh, uh, Responding to the fact that it was the most searched phrase in 2012, asked a panel of experts to answer the question, right? Let's, let's provide people with what they're looking for. They had a philosopher, they had a, a, a chemist, they had a, a novelist, they had a religious person, I believe she was a nun, all answering this question. I won't bore you with their answers. But they were interesting. For one, love was, for the, for the, for the chemist, love was a matter of brain chemistry, right? It's, a, it's, it's things that, are, that happen inside your brain, things that are firing that make you feel in a particular way. Um, one of the, the philosophers, I think, called it passionate commitment. I won't get into all the very carefully outlined reasons for those two words that he gave in the article, but passionate commitment. Uh, for the novelist, love is the thing that drives a good story. It's the thing that you're always just outside of, almost in possession of, but not quite. It keeps your pages turning. But I thought perhaps the most revealing thing about this whole article is the way that it was framed. Because it was framed as five theories on the greatest emotion of all. Five theories on the greatest emotion of all. So the article itself is kind of defining what love is, right? It's an emotion. It's a way of feeling. And for all the precision and the answers of these experts, I think that that framing of it probably gives us a better answer as to where most of us are, most of our culture, what comes natural to us on the question of what love is. Love is, is a feeling. Love is a self-expression for most of us, a way of feeling towards an object that satisfies our desires, that makes us feel better about ourselves. I'm not saying that's what love actually is. I'm saying that what comes natural to us when we think about love is, is that, a feeling that we have towards something that makes us feel good, that satisfies us, that makes us feel better about ourselves. What isn't prominent in our culture, what didn't really come up in the article, is love as a sort of commitment. Love is something that could cost you. Love that is something that could require sacrifice. That isn't prominent at all. Which is why a lot of times I think we see love getting cited as a justification for just about anything. As the one thing you can use to justify an action you want, to, you want it to take that cannot be criticized or challenged by anybody. Love ends the argument, right? Well, we're in love. So why shouldn't we do that? How could we not do that? Or... I'm not in love with you anymore. So obviously I can't stay with you, right? Love is a conversation ender. It's a justification no one can challenge. That's, that's what comes natural to us, I think. I mean, for our culture, it's, that's the answer to what love is. But God is not like us. That's been the theme for the last several weeks in our study of Isaiah. 
We've been trying to look, from pulling from different parts of this book at how Isaiah views God, what God is like. And what we've been seeing is that you can summarize the whole thing, the whole picture of God with the word holy. And that holy really just means not normal, above us, outside of our experience, beyond what comes natural or, or what seems right to us. God is holy. And so since, since giving that broad category, we've been trying to unpack it. What are the different ways that he's holy? We talked about him being holy in a, with a sort of transcendence, that he's beyond everything in the natural world, that he, that he rules over all of history and all of nature with absolute power, and no one can challenge him. He's transcendent, and that makes him not normal, makes him holy. We've talked about his holiness as, a, as, as something to do with his moral perfection, that he always does what's right, that he has given him enti- his entire self towards what's right, that he's aimed at it, and that he secures it. He does it and he judges all things that deviate from it. And that makes him holy. It makes him worship worthy. It makes him not normal. And today we get to the last of the sort of layers we want to peel back in this picture of God's holiness. Something about God's love makes him holy. It makes him not normal, not like us. Because the picture of God's love that's, that's drawn for us in Isaiah is far removed from the one I just set up for you, the one set up by this article, the one that you might find your way to if you searched on Google, what is love? What we want to do is search in Isaiah, asking the same question, but a little more specifically. What is God's love like? What we're going to see is that it's holy. It's not like ours. Now, before we get too far into it, I need to, I need to actually confess something here. The word love doesn't even come up in the passage that I've chosen to explain God's love. Just put it all on the table here. But love is a theme that runs all through Isaiah, God's love. And usually when his love is talked about, it's talked about as shown most in his work to redeem us, to save people who had turned against him. And this passage that we're going to look at today, the reason I chose this one to to sort of pick apart what God's holy love is like is that it's the best summary of what other parts of Isaiah say about God's redemption. The word love may not come up here, but it's talking about his love, and it's a great window into what the rest of the, of the book talk, says about God's love. That's why we've chosen this. It talks about his love exercised in his, in his redemption of sinners. And at the middle of the passage we're going to read today, in verse 5 of chapter 40, we're told that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. It culm- that's the culmination of this, of this drive to redeem sinners that the, the first part of the passage talks about. And the reason I want to highlight that at the beginning is that you can see it's about God's holiness. One of the things we've been saying is that glory in Isaiah is also kind of a synonym for his holiness. The things that make him just amazing, glorious, uh, worthy of worship, those are the same things that make him holy. So his glory and his holiness are kind of the same thing. And here at the middle of this passage, we're, su- we're seeing that God redeems for the sake of his glory so that everyone will see it. And I think what we're meant to see from this verse is that there's something about his holy love that shows his holiness and his glory even more clearly than any other part of his holiness. That it's sort of the thing to which all the other parts of his holiness builds so that all flesh will see it when they see what God does to save sinners. That's what we're going to look at this morning. What is God's love like? From Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 8. If you found it, would you please stand with me now 
uh, in honor of God's word as, as I read. I'm going to read the first eight verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. A voice says, Cry! And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Here's the first thing I want us to notice about God's love. What is it like? God's holy love is preemptive. His holy love is preemptive. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and make another confession to you this morning. All of these start with a P. Sorry about that. I just couldn't resist. It just came together. I try not to do that too often. I don't, don't write me off as cheesy and uh, cliche, but I just couldn't resist. It was just so there. These all start with a P. The first one is preemptive. God's holy love is preemptive. This first point is a crucial one. It's one that resonates throughout the entire Bible story. But I'll admit, it doesn't come with a smoking gun sort of reference in the eight verses we just read. There isn't a verse in there, in other words, that says... God's love is preemptive. Rather, it screams at us from everything about the context and from the way that the passage is built. All of it, together, if you understand it in context, screams that God's love does not wait on us but comes to us. It's preemptive. It takes initiative. I think we need to begin in chapter 39, verses 5 to 7, to understand this. This is a little bit of context that I think will help you connect with the, with the significance of this passage. What we've said is that Isaiah talks about all the themes we're going to be tracing all through the book. It's kind of scattered, really. He wasn't about like logic, linear logic, where he just moves point A to point B to point C all the way through. But that, that messages are coming at us from all these different places. And, and while that's true to a large extent, there is, an under, there is another part of the structure of the book that I think helps to know. The first 39 chapters of it are mostly about Israel's sin and God's judgment. That's mostly what they're about. That's not all they're about, but that's mostly what they're about. And then in chapter 40, from there to the end of the book, it's mostly about God's plan to redeem Israel in spite of her sin. So we've chosen this passage largely because it's a hinge. It's where God turns from judging sin to saving sinners. The context, though, is not Israel repenting. Israel doesn't change anything about themselves. In, verse, in verses 5 to um, to 7 of 39, I think help us see this, that Israel is still sort of at the lowest of the low point in their history when this word of hope comes to them. Here's how, here's how the author sets it up in verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. Again, exile has not happened yet. Isaiah is still looking in the future towards judgment, 
but he's seeing it and it is going to happen. It may as well have already happened. That's the way he says. That's the way he's, he's setting this up. The days are coming when all that's in your house, all of your possessions, and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. So part of this problem, part of what's going to happen is that you're going to lose the land that gave you an identity as a people. The promise of God to your fathers was that you would have a place that would be yours. It would be holy. It would be a place where he would be your God and you would be his people. And now that is going away. You're going to be shipped off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, verse 6. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is the other side to Israel's promises. The promise that that God would, through the line of Abraham, establish a whole people that would be holy to him, that would be the means by which he'd save the world. And now that line, just as the land had been cut off, we're told that your sons, the ones who were going to be the the, the mechanism for God saving the world through this new people, they're going to be castrated. The, The idea that they could build a people will now be cut off. And they will live not in their own land as kings of their own kingdom, but as servants to a foreign and evil king. In other words, chapter 39 sets up the low point in Israel's history. And Israel had not done anything to change this course. There's no repentance. There's no, there's no remorse even over their sin. All of the promises God had made to them were in question. Nothing's changed when chapter 40 opens. Now that's the context I want you to read chapter 40 in. The remarkable thing about God's love is that it initiates, that it comes down and goes towards those who are dead and sin-broken and helpless and not even remorseful yet. Those who abandoned him, those who had trusted in other gods, those who had broken his covenant are the ones that he speaks to in verse 1 of chapter 40 when he says, comfort my people. They're still his people and he speaks comfort and not judgment. The theme continues in the verses, uh, the language of verses 3 to 5 of chapter 40. I think this is how we're supposed to see this, this imagery of describing the land and how it's going to change. The best explanation of it that I came across in my reading was that it's symbolic of where Israel is. Israel is a wilderness. They are a desert. They are barren. They are lifeless. They are impassable terrain. That's the, the every mountain and hill being low and the rough places becoming a plain. Israel is impassable. You can't do anything with them. That's how they are when God finds them. But the voice cries in the wilderness, make a way because God is coming to you in your lifelessness. Everything that makes you impassable and untouchable is going to be leveled out by God and his mercy. He is making all things new. That's the point. And everyone will see it. All flesh will see his glory. That's the promise of verses 3 to 5. It's here that his glory is revealed. His holiness, his holiness, what makes him unique and godlike and worthy of worship. It's here that it's revealed. His preemptive love of those who aren't worthy and can't repay him. It's a constant theme through the Bible. It's not just here. I'm not reading this into this passage. It, is, it starts with Abraham. 
In chapter 12 of Genesis, one of the most important stories in all of the Bible is God coming to Abraham to set apart a people that he's going to use to save the world. And the person he chooses to do that with is a guy who was worshiping many gods of his fathers far outside of what would become the Holy Land. He was living in, in pagan territory, doing as pagans do. He had no land, he had no family, and that's the one that God comes to, to place his special love on and to, to remake the world through. Continues on all through the Old Testament. Some of the best examples are in the prophets. One of my favorites is from the prophet Ezekiel. In chapter 37 of Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel this vision of what he's going to do through his word of promise for Israel. And the vision is this. The preacher stands over a valley full of dry bones. It's just a bunch of skeletons out there. And that's what Israel had come to. Lifeless and empty and broken and helpless. They are dead in their sin. And God will speak through the prophet a word of hope and life, a word of holy love. And these bones will come to life. They will take on flesh. They will have hearts that are living and beating and active in worship of God. That's the image of how God's preemptive love comes to those who are dead. Paul's letters extend it to all of us. In Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite examples of this theme, Paul sets up what we're all like on our own. He says, that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. That just like everyone else, you're a child of wrath. But in your death, in the midst of it, God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us has joined us with Christ and seated us with him. Through Jesus, God makes the dead alive. This, this preemptive love is what John meant in 1 John four nineteen. When he says that we love because he first loved us. And it's the first thing to notice about what makes God's love holy. It's not like ours. It comes to us. It initiates. It's preemptive. Before going too much further, I just want to make sure that you are connecting with the message of comfort that's embedded in this truth for you. There's a lot of ways we could tease this out. I, I especially want to target those of you who feel like you're unlovable and unworthy. I don't know why you might feel that way. It could be that you're broken in sin, that you're exhausted by it, you feel like you can't get over it. You know that you're guilty. Maybe it's because people in your life haven't loved you well. Your parents, your friends haven't been faithful. I don't know. Wherever it comes from, if you're feeling unloved and unlovable this morning, I want, to, I want to encourage you, in light of this passage, not to believe that lie. Because the reason you feel unloved and unlovable is that you've bought into a definition of what love is like that draws more from our consumer-oriented society than it does from God and His holiness. What makes you feel unlovable is the thought that no one could want what you have to offer. You think of yourself like a product who's there to fulfill someone else's desires. And if you don't have anything to offer, then that makes you unlovable. You can't imagine why a consumer would want to buy what you have. But God's love is not like ours. God's love is holy. It's unusual. It's not normal. God's love doesn't require you to make yourself worthy, to clean up your act, to change your ways before it reaches down into your death and gives you life. God's love initiates. 
There's no better picture of this than the incarnation. And what Christians believe happened when Jesus came to earth was that God himself took on flesh like ours and came here to live and to die and to rise again for us. And what we see embedded in that truth is that God doesn't make us first come to him, but he has come to us literally, physically, bodily. His, his love is preemptive. That's the beauty of the incarnation, and that's the promise that it holds for you if you're feeling particularly broken this morning. That's the first thing God's love is like. God's love is preemptive. Here's the next thing. God's holy love is pardoning. God's holy love is pardoning. This is in verse 2 of chapter 40. Here's what it says. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received double from the Lord's hand for all her sins. On the surface, I think what we've said about God's love being preemptive, you could think that what we're saying is that it's unconditional. Right? And there's a, there, there's a sense in which that's true. We don't have to fulfill any condition before God comes to us and loves us. And there's, there's a sweetness to that. There's a, there's a beauty in it and, and a holiness to it. But I think if we're satisfied with calling it unconditional, we're also missing a much deeper layer of what this love is like that actually makes it even more sweet, that makes it even more holy and unusual. Because God's love isn't actually unconditional. It is conditional. But it comes with a set of conditions that God has met himself on our behalf. God doesn't love by choosing not to see our sin as a problem, but by solving the problem of our sin. This is where we get into something I've been hinting at for the last two or three weeks. And that is that these images of God's holiness really require each other. They build on each other. And that if you don't connect in this case with the image we unpacked last week of God's holiness as his moral perfection, the fact that he is the kind of judge all of us would want hearing our case, that all of us would want on the Supreme Court, a judge who can't be bought, a judge who always knows what's right perfectly and does what's right without fail. And that that means he has to judge us as well. That's what we learned about his holiness last week. Without that picture of his holiness, though, the holiness that is his righteousness and his perfection, then the picture of his holiness that is his, his love is vacated of a lot of its beauty and meaning. It's only in light of these conditions that his holy perfection sets for him, that he can't, that he can't just pretend don't exist. It's only in light of those things, the fact that he has to judge sin, that God's holy love for us takes on its full meaning and depth. I want to unpack this idea. I know that's a lot to swallow. If, if, if it's not quite following for you yet, just hang on. I think we're going to get there by the end. I want to get there by, by walking through verse 2. Look at how it unfolds. The first promise is that her warfare is ended, that for Israel now peace has come. But how? Verse 30, or verses 5 to 7 that we read in chapter 39 describe anything but peace. So, so how has peace been established? Why? Where? Who? I think the next phrase unpacks it a little bit further. Peace is possible because her iniquity has been pardoned. Pardon is a, is a word that means sin has been paid for. or uh, that, that usually comes up in the book of Leviticus, for example, when, when the talk is of blood sacrifices, of God being satisfied. Pardon is a word not for looking the other way, but for being satisfied with a sacrifice that's been made. That's, that's the meaning of the word here. 
And that, 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 that's the meaning of the word makes the, next, makes the next phrase even more tricky. So, we, so he's saying Israel's iniquity has been pardoned over here. And then the next line he says that she's received double for all her sins. And I don't know about you, but when I read that line for the first time, it sounded to me like what he was saying is that Israel has been punished like a double portion. She's been punished even more than what she deserved, right? And so now her sin's no longer a problem. But how, if that's what it means, how does that square with the fact that pardon has happened, that, that God has been satisfied by sacrifice, that Israel is not going to be held accountable for their sins? How does this double portion square with the phrase right before it? How does it square with the fact that in the, in the passage we looked at together last week, we were told that Israel could be wiped clean off the face of the earth and God's hand would still be stretched out in anger against them because it's, even their death is not enough. Their death in this life is not enough to outweigh what they had done to God. These phrases just don't make sense on the surface unless you see an underlying pattern. And here it is. Israel is pardoned for his sin. And Israel has received double for her sin. She did receive a punishment far greater than the weight of the sin committed. It's one of those things that one of my favorite commentators on Isaiah calls the messianic enigma in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah. That there's this weird mystery about how God will deliver Israel that doesn't really fully get explained, but comes up all over the place. This is one of those places where it pops up. How can Israel be pardoned and at the same time receive double for her sin? It's not, it's not something that this passage explains. It's something that Isaiah chapter 53, that we read earlier in our service, gets a little closer to explaining. That's, that's the passage that you should read on your own time later this week for your encouragement. I think, I think it would be a great thing for you to pray through. It's a passage that talks about this servant that the Lord sends to take on his own back the iniquities of Israel. All of their sin and all of the things that their sin uh, means for judgment and what's got to come from God's hand towards them, all of that gets taken on by this servant who didn't deserve to die but was crushed by the will of God on behalf of his people. Ultimately, what these, the way these two phrases in verse 2 go together, the way pardon is possible and like a double portion for her sin is that Israel is pardoned and Jesus takes the double portion. That God has promised here to send the Messiah who would take on what Israel's sin required. It isn't that God looked the other way. It isn't that God pretended like sin was not a problem. It's that God himself paid the debt that sin had brought on Israel and paid it so perfectly and completely that there's nothing left. In fact, they're in the black now. That's the point of the phrase. Now, here's what I want you to see. We all, I think, because we live and breathe in the culture that we do, I think we're all a little bit averse to hearing about God's judgment. It seems unworthy to us of his love. It seems to make him seem less loving that he would have to punish. But I think what we really need to recognize is that a love that allows God to pretend like sin isn't an issue misses the full weight and the full beauty of the Bible's picture of God's love. It misses, in other words, the full extent of his holiness, of how unnormal, non-normal his love actually is. Because a love 
that just leads God to look the other way and pretend like sin doesn't exist. That's not a love that costs God anything, right? Nothing more than maybe a little bit of wounded pride than the the energy that it takes to pretend like something didn't happen. If it costs little, how great could that love be? It's God's moral perfection, his holy commitment to everything that's right and his demand for satisfaction for what isn't right. It's that holy commitment that establishes just how great and deep his holy love is when it supplies the very thing that his justice demands, when it brings together God's holy perfection and God's holy love in a perfect, brilliant, godlike solution to the problem none of us could have solved. Here's an analogy. No, no, no analogy works perfectly for this, but I think this one helps. What's more loving? Let's say you steal my credit card and you run up a couple thousand dollars in charges. Now, it would be a certain kind of love for me to not take that personally. Let's put that kind of love over here. I'm not going to hold that against you in our friendship. You know, I'm going to, in a sense, pretend like it didn't happen. I'm going to forgive you for that. That is, that is loving, right? But part of the possibility for that kind of love would mean forgetting that the debt exists, right? Just pretending like there wasn't a couple thousand dollars out there hanging over my head that, that has to be paid. Forgetting that that debt doesn't have its own existence is an objective standard that's got to be dealt with that you just can't look away from. A love that just looks the other way is a love that doesn't take that debt into account. And it is loving, maybe, to forgive, But how much more loving if I don't just decide I'm not going to hold it against you, but I decide I'm actually going to pay that debt. I'm not going to require the pound of flesh from you. I'm not going to make you work it off. I'm going to not hold it against you, not let it define our relationship, and on top of that, I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to take the cost on myself. I think this kind of love is is so much more holy so much less normal, so much more godlike, so much further removed from our no- normal sense of love as self-fulfillment, as what we get out of a relationship, as a product that satisfies us. God's love is not just preemptive, it is pardoning, and therefore it is a holy love, far more beautiful than if the debt didn't have to be paid. Here's the third piece. God's holy love is permanent. God's holy love is permanent. Verses 6 to 8 are some of my favorite, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Comes up here, gets quoted again later by Peter in one of his letters. All flesh is grass, and its beauty like the flower of the field. It withers, it fades. And all of us, fall into this category. But where the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Now, again, the word love doesn't come up in this passage. So why am I saying this is about God's love? In fact, I think I remember as a child memorizing it um, as, as one of the passages in a category about the Bible. This is, a, this is what's true about the Bible. So it's taking a word for the Bible in general. And I think it's definitely true about the Bible. But I think it's even more specific than that. In this context, 
in this beautiful passage about God's plan to redeem, and in the, in the context of the whole Bible, which is a big story about what God does to save us from ourselves, the word that's talked about here is much more than just a generic word. It is a word of love, a word of hope and redemption. And it's this loving word, this thing that represents what God will do that will never fade away. The deeper question, I think, is how is this even possible? How is it that this love that he expresses to us in this word won't fade away when everything else about our experience, everything else that we know, fades? It's here that this picture, I've been saying, these different layers of God's holiness build on each other. And if you see them in connection with each other, it gets sweeter and sweeter. And here, I think it's God's holy transcendence. The fact that he is a power unmatched by anything else in the world, that he is far beyond the limitations that we know in the world we live in. It's that truth about God that makes the holiness of his love, of his permanent love, possible and trustworthy. When a transcendent God, a God who is holy in his transcendence, makes a promise, then he keeps it and nothing can stand in his way. Don't miss the beauty that's here. Change, things changing and fading and passing away, that is at the core of our experience. It touches everything, large and small, about our lives. It, it's something we experience in, in, in events as trivial and, and swift as a delicious meal. You know, when I know I'm going to eat at one of my favorite restaurants, I just long for it. Right? I look forward to it. Sometimes the whole day is shaped by it. And then 30 minutes... It's gone. It's over. I feel full, but that's it. Same thing happens to me with vacations. You know, you just live for vacation sometimes. You work for it. It keeps you going, charged up. And then it's like as soon as you unpack your bags, wherever you are, it's over. I mean, it's just gone. And you might come back more rested. There's some good effects that you keep living out, but it's, it's over. It, it doesn't last. Our bodies are the same way. My body is aging and reminding me daily that everything dies, and I will too. I'm 30 years old and have no hair. <laughs> Another place I get the sense that everything, that even, even good and beautiful things, just don't last. I'm, I'm getting this sense more and more as a parent. I, I'm in this really fun phase of parenting with these young kids, and, and, and my wife and I talk about this sometimes, I feel like I'm living through some of the best years of my life. Like I feel like 30 years from now, if I live that long, 40 years from now, I'll look back on these years right now and think, yeah, that was good. That was sweet. And it is flying by. It's like it's just slipping through my fingers, like trying to hold on to, to, to a ball of water. And you know you can't get it back once it's gone. Nothing lasts. But God does. And God's word of hope and promise won't fade with everything else. I want to take this even further. Let's get even closer to the implications of this, of this, this promise. Let's consider human relationships. I've just been talking about random examples like meals and vacations and, um, you know, follicles. Let's talk about human relationships. They always evolve, don't they? They change. They often end. 
applies to friendships. I mean, how many people from your early life, say from high school, that were just like every day in your life people that you couldn't imagine not having in your life? How many people in that category are, are now just gone from your life? You just haven't kept in touch. How many friendships that you even have now are changing on you? Certainly refer, it certainly applies to, to romantic relationships, even to marriages. They change, and often they don't last. And the unfortunate reality here is that we've tied up what we think love is with how we think relationships are supposed to work. We think relationships are supposed to serve our interests, that they're supposed to match and suit our tastes, that they're useful as long as they do serve our interests and suit our tastes, and that when they stop serving our interests or suiting our tastes, they're dispensable. We naturally think we love someone when we want that someone. We're drawn to that someone. We like the way we feel around that someone when that someone makes us feel better about ourselves. We say we love you, but what we often mean, all of us, this is true of all of us if we're honest, what we often mean is we love the way you make us feel. I love the satisfaction that you offer me. Our statements of love are more like the statements of a satisfied consumer, right? How many of us said we love our 20-inch tube-style TV back in its day, right? I remember, I remember getting a, I remember when we first got married, which is about 10 years ago, that one of our gifts was a 20-inch tube TV with a built-in VCR. And I would have told you, I love that TV. I think it's awesome. It's exactly what we need. That's what we mean by love. A satisfied, a temporarily satisfied statement of consumption. In other words, it's not a statement of covenant commitment. Love statements are statements of free market economics, right? I will commit myself, my affections, my resources to this object as long as it satisfies my needs and my requirements, but only till a better model comes along. Love in our experience, and perhaps this is especially true about relational love, just doesn't last. It withers. It fades. But God's love is not normal. God's love is not like our experience. God's love is holy. It's a committed love that won't fade because it's held. It is a love that is held by the one who is also holy in his transcendence, the one who exists beyond the realm of all competing powers, the one whose mind doesn't change, the one for whom no one, to whom no one gives him any kind of counsel. He knows what is. He knows the end from the beginning. There's no new information or new model that's going to change the way he feels. He is transcendent. His love won't fade because he is transcendent. And he is a power so great that there is nothing that could threaten the object of his love. There's nothing that could change his mind because he knows all things. There's nothing that can take away from him the object of his love. There's nothing that can threaten it because he is so far beyond all other powers. His love is not fickle, in other words, and his love is not weak because his love is holy. It's not like the love of your unfulfilling, even if well-meaning, friendships. It's not like the love of your father that you could never quite earn. And thank heaven 
It is not like your love or my love. It's a holy love. It's this love that Paul's basically riffing on in Romans chapter 8, one of the most famous and beloved passages in all of the Bible, where Paul talks about the fact that we have been loved by the God of the universe so much that he sent his own son. And if this God is the God who loves you, then what can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus? Shall things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, shall height or depth or any other created thing? No, because this God lives and he reigns and his holy love doesn't fade. This is the God that Isaiah 40 pictures for us so vividly and so beautifully. And here's the place I want to finish. One of the things we've been doing this series on holiness, on on how God's holy love is displayed for us in Isaiah, is we've been pointing, not fully diving into, but pointing to the fact that God's holy love, as unnormal as it is, is possible for us because he changes us. When God places his love on us, It doesn't leave us the way we were, but transforms us so that we share his holiness. And each week we've tried to at least point to the way that that aspect of his holiness becomes ours. Even in his transcendence, certainly in his his moral perfection. And we are also called to share his holy love. In fact, I want you to read three passages today or this week. I want you to read... John 13, 34, and 35. This is our calling to holy love. This is where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. In other words, all men will know you are not normal. They, are no, they will know you are holy and marked off and different because of the way you love one another. That's John 13, 34, and 35. Next, I want you to read... Ephesians chapter 4, the last verse in the first couple verses of chapter 5. This is the passage that explains how this holy love that is so not normal can become possible for us, how we get empowered by it. And here's what it says. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. In other words, do like I have done. Use what I have done for you as the engine or the power that that drives you to to taking this love to other people. Be imitators of God, chapter 5 continues, as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What God has done for us, the holy love he has displayed towards us, actually, when we really understand it and take it into our heart, begins to change us and give us the ability to love like that towards other people. To love not for what we get out of it, but for what we put into it. To love even when it kills us. For greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. And here's the last passage I want you to read. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If John 13 is about the calling to holy love, Ephesians 4 and 5 are about how that holy love is possible because we've we've experienced it from God's hand. Then 1 Corinthians 13 is one of my favorite passages that show us what this holy love would look like. What does a not normal, unfading, preemptive, and pardoning love look like for human beings? You have to know a little bit about the context in the letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians. Basically what you need to know is that this church was messed up. Seriously dysfunctional. Here are this, here's just a few examples 
of what Paul calls this church out on earlier in the letter to 1 Corinthians. In chapter 1, he calls them out for splitting up into party lines, for sort of saying, you know what, I'm with Paul, I'm with Peter, I'm with Apollos, and I'm better than you because I'm with this guy while you're with this guy over here. If you were enlightened, if you had my insight, you would know to align with this one and not this one. They were, they were split. They turned even the gospel into something to identify themselves and give them pride. In chapter 5, Paul calls them out for celebrating the fact that they were so tolerant that they allowed a man who was sleeping with his stepmother to continue as part of a fully functioning body of Christ. That they were, they were turning the, they, they were showing just how much, how gracious they were by allowing this thing, Paul says, even the pagans don't let go on, happen in their midst. Later on in the letter, Paul calls them out for being, for, for some who had the Christian freedom to eat meat that were sacrificed to idols, rubbing that in the faces of those who didn't have that strength those who were still sort of on the fence between commitment to Jesus and drifting back into their idol worship, and therefore they were just terrified of the idea that they would have any contact with anything related to, to idols. And those who weren't on the fence, who were more secure in their Christianity, they were eating the stuff that had been sacrificed to idols right in the faces of those who couldn't take it, and not seeing that they could be driving them back into their pagan idolatry. They didn't care about others, they cared about themselves. Chapter 11 is maybe the best example of how messed up this church was. Chapter 11, Paul writes to them to tell the rich people in the church to stop eating all the food at the potlucks before the, the poor people in the church got a chance to have their meal. That they were coming together to celebrate communion for crying out loud. And that before they were doing it, they were eating a meal and the rich taking this priority that their culture would have given to them were eating first. And they were eating it all. And they were leaving nothing for those who had the most needs. Now that's the messed up church that 1 Corinthians 13 is written to. And knowing that it's full of these kind of people, I want you to hear how these people are to love each other. Beginning in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now read verse 7. In light of how messed up this church was and how they were treating each other, love bears all things. It believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. And love never ends. Which is to say, Christian love is holy love. It is not normal. And it is the best evangelism strategy that the church has ever received because a community of people who love these kind of messed up people in this radically unholy way is a community that testifies to the truth of the promises they live from to the truth of what they claim because what else could explain this kind of holiness may god help us to live like this father we want to take on the holiness that's yours we want to love each other preemptively and in a way that pardons each other their offenses and in a way that is permanent and not fickle. We are so fickle, Father. We admit it. Our tastes come and go. And we love each other like we love our iPods, just waiting on the next model. But we want to love like you do. Knowing that it's beyond our power, we ask that you, by your love of us, would make us able to love each other in a way that's holy and beautiful. We ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen.